Prophetic Voices Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation. Welcome back. I'm so glad you could join us today. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing some of the readings for Advent 3, focusing particularly on our gospel lesson, Luke 3, 7 through 18, and Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. With me today, I have three guests. Mother Andrea is the curate priest at St. John's Episcopal Church in Lafayette, Indiana. She has a passion for preaching, pastoral care, and a good cup of tea. Welcome, Andrea. The Reverend Phil Hooper, SMMS, serves as curate at Trinity Episcopal Church, Fort Wayne, Indiana, in the Diocese of Northern Indiana. Welcome, Phil. And the Reverend Nelson Mendoza serves as curate at St. Francis Episcopal Church in Green Valley, Arizona, within the Diocese of Arizona. Welcome, Nelson. What's important to keep in mind this Advent? This Advent, it's more important than ever that we welcome and proclaim the message of the manifested and deliberate presence of the love of God in the world. We're still emerging from global trauma, and that's magnified for people with few resources. If we're ever needed to share the message that God loves us and cares for us all in visible ways, the time is now. This year, especially even more so than last year, I think we need uh, a true, authentic, and bold message of what it means to have hope in the midst of chaos. Uh, you know, last year, I think in many ways, people equated their sense of hope and expectation in Advent with a return to normalcy uh, amidst the, the pandemic, especially, you know, waiting for a vaccine and suddenly we'd all be saved uh, to go back to our, our lives the way they used to be. But I think the complexities, the continued complexities of the past year have shown us first that we can't go back to normal and in many ways, we shouldn't want to go back to normal uh, because there were so many aspects of uh, life in our society, especially here in the United States, uh, that, that needed to be taken apart, that needed to be deconstructed, that needed to be mm. re-examined. Uh, and so I think right now, Advent 2021 is a moment of sort of saying we can't go back and yet we don't know what lies ahead. And so what does it mean to have hope and trust in the manifestation of God's love, as you said, without actually knowing what that's going to look like for us? You know, we use Advent to prepare for the coming of Christ, but I'm curious what it might look like to actually embody what it means to prepare for something that we're not really able to prepare for. We try to check off all these boxes. We try to get our vaccines and we try to, you know, eventually do our shopping list for the holidays. And yet, is it actually giving us an opportunity to pause and reflect and actually to consider what it might look like to operate differently in a world that, quite frankly, is asking us to operate differently? Mm. Tied to that, like what social messages do you think or social justice messages do you think our congregations need to hear right now? One of the things I've noticed is that social justice is sometimes considered an add-on of the things we do as worshipers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus. 
And I think the message, one of the messages, at least, that I think are really important for us to drive home right now is that social justice is embedded in our relationship with God and each other. Just the past, uh, a recent Sunday at the end of October, um, we talked about loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving each other. And so being born out of the generous love that God has shown us, that's the message I think that we need to have embedded with social justice, that it's not something we just do from time to time, but it's actually who we are if we're going to say that we are people of God. Yeah, and it's who God is, right? Like yes. God is justice and God is social. God is a relationship of justice within God's self. The Trinity is a system of perfect justice and harmony. This is not an extracurricular activity for particularly virtuous Christians. This is just <laughs> the nature of God's reality that we, sh we need to see as fundamental. I really think of this feeling or this kind of energy of accessibility, like how are we making God accessible to ourselves during this time of Advent and as we kind of move forward through the year and through the remainder of this pandemic, which is still going uh, maybe more prevalently per se for others. And and so I'm, I'm curious what it looks like to be mindful of everyone's like location, uh, whether that's social location or location in terms of their proximity to how they are engaging their health and their wellness. And um, just there's so many things that I think this pandemic is truly this odd equalizer, if you will. It's forcing people to take a pause, whether those folks are actually taking a pause is another story. Yes, Nelson, I really hear how, you say, how, how you're saying the importance of the pause. And we quite literally have paused the world mm -hmm. and the way what we do after we have a pause, whether we really enter that pause and say, okay, it's an opportunity to look at things anew as, as Phil alluded to in the first uh, section of our questions. But also if we take the pause and we start again, who are we starting again with? Hmm. What is our way of starting forward? Is it actually time to move in the same direction? So I think that's really important to just you know really step into that pause and see what god might be speaking to us especially in terms of social justice yeah and i think what what both of you sort of suggesting and what you said what it's making me think of is that that pause it has to it needs to be collective it needs to be a shared communal pause i i, I think sometimes like I don't know. There's a there's a particular strain of sort of private spirituality that that is popular in in the Episcopal Church and and probably lots of other churches that that the idea of taking a pause in Advent means, you know, like the spiritual version of taking a bubble bath and sort of like <laughs> I just need to decompress and take a deep breath and it's all about sort of soothing myself in the stresses of the world. And, and that is self-care is absolutely important. And, and I think especially tending to and advocating for self-care for people who have been really on the receiving end of a lot of struggle and, and strife. But I do think communally, we have to challenge ourselves to do something more than just take a quiet day 
uh, for prayer mm. and to actually say that taking a pause in Advent and, and really in any time in this moment of societal change is, is something that we have to do together. And it actually has to include intentional re-examination of the fundamentals of who we are and how we coexist with one another and with creation. Uh, because I, I think it can be very easy to just sort of say, well, I've taken my pause, I've sort of had, I've claimed my peace, and shouldn't that be good enough? But if we're not actually working for a collective sense of peace and healing and tranquility in the world at large, I think, you know, Advent becomes sort of just this sort of fun pastime for the people who have the luxury of, of engaging with it. Nelson, you talked about accessibility, and I'm trying to connect that with the gospel. And I just like, as, as I read the gospel, I'm like, oh, 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 <laughs> like John's just like, ah! um, it's like this very like, I'm just imagine John as well, John the Baptist as like, you know, the Baptist, like stereotypical Baptist church, I'm like, you are sinners, and we got to da da da. And I just imagine that, <laughs> you know, John's kind of intense. And so where do we find where do we find hope in this message? What I thought of was kind of in Lakota culture, we have this iktomi, which is like a spider spirit, uh, the trickster. And um, uh, iktomi is like sort of points out your bad faults, usually embarrassingly. And then our stories that we tell about iktomi, he does embarrassing things. But, um, but like, and so you learn from those mistakes. And so sometimes like when things are going bad for you or like maybe you, are so busy thinking about how beautiful you are that you stumble over your own feet. It's like reminding you, like, maybe I need to be humble. But where do we find hope in this? It wouldn't be John the Baptist if we didn't focus on, you know, the elements of baptism, right? Mm. What I've seen a lot in at least my people is this fascinating and awe-inspiring hunger to truly remember what our baptism means. But we haven't allowed the, um, you know, a little baptismal font in the beginning of, you know, where the church entry is. And so mm. a lot of folks mm -hmm. don't have that uh, for those whose practice of coming into church and, you know, uh, dipping their finger in and crossing themselves. They haven't had that for almost two years. And so to see how important that has been to them has really opened up what baptism means to each of us, particularly as Episcopalians or as Christians, and that how do we continue to live that out when it feels like sometimes that thing that we have gotten accustomed to is no longer available, or perhaps maybe in the traditional way that um, it, it has been. One of the parishioners came up to me one day a few months ago and was like, hey, we have these Purell hand sanitizer stands um, there's water in those, uh, can you like bless them so that at least when we come in, we can like feel like we have blessed hand sanitizer or water that we can use. And I was like, you know what, that's an innovative way to go about it. And, you know, according to the Bishop after my ordination, I can bless lots of things. So why not? And so, <laughs> so I did. And ever since I shared that with a parishioner, it has been fascinating to see some of them kind of go over to the machine, rub it in their hands and then do a little sign of the cross. And so <laughs> it, it all kind of ties into, uh, for at least me, this, this image of us taking a pause, one when we enter, uh, one as a, uh, as a reminder for us to kind of remember our purpose of why we are doing church, why we are being church, and how we are called to be Christians uh, through our baptism um, mm. in a, again, in a maybe silly way. So what clearing of the threshing floor needs to happen in our society or in our church right now? That's a tough question, right? 
you know, you're clearing the threshing floor and you're trying to pull the grain from the chaff. And so they're talking about like the chaff will be burned and the grain will be kept. And so I think for so many people, when they read this, they sort of maybe see you either are the grain or you are the chaff. But I think we all have bits and pieces of us that are both of those things. And so we kind of have to figure out what of the grain are we going to keep and what of the chaff do we need to get rid of? But I think we sometimes think so much of these things on an individual level, but we also need to be reflecting on this in a societal and um, and a collective level, a congregational level. Like, what do you think in our church? What What is the chaff in our church? Perhaps it's not necessarily a, an exclusionary either or, right? I mean, I hate being that person that's like, oh, I got to find the optimistic, you know, the gold and everything. But what are the things that we are learning out of this absolute disaster of a past two years. And a lot of people think it's just one, but no, we're approaching 22 months, uh, which is, you know, if you round up, because I'm bad at math, 24 months, and that's two years. And so, you know, how do we um, consider that? And how do we make, how do we for ourselves reconcile the fact that we don't, we don't disqualify the last two years of our lives as not being important and not having worth or value and how do we take those lessons um good and bad and sorrow and joy into consideration as we move forward into again the season of advent and whatever the season uh that is yet to come has in store for all of us so often it's getting rid of what is bad but sometimes to really consider in a difficult situation what is good and what's worth storing up and even the chaff had a purpose. I mean, it's burned with unquenchable fire, but that often it offers light and warmth. Yeah. So well, and and you know, this is just speaking from things. my experience as a first generation uh, queer person of color, who, in many church settings and denominations, I would absolutely be the discarded, right? Mm. And yet, God has found a way to use all parts of what I consider, you know, who I am into a flourishing and thriving, I think, ministry, um, despite being in a pandemic, but despite, you know, all these other factors, right? And so what does it mean for me to think about that when I know that that is, it's not a unique situation. It's not an isolated situation. I know that there are individuals who feel very much the same where, you know, they are not, you know, kind of going back to the socialist thing, they're just not given the same access or the same opportunity to prove, I don't want to say prove, but to show that they are as worthy as everyone else in whatever setting, industry, or whatnot you have. I think in that passage, too, it's important to remember who is doing the separating God is the one who separates the wheat from the chaff and determines which is which. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is all too easy for the church (laughs) writ large people in power in the church to take that role upon themselves. Kind of, as you were saying, Nelson, to decide who or what is chaff and who or what is wheat. Uh, There's a lot of white wheat flour. You you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) Gluten free too. (laughs) (laughs) I, and I, I, I think there's real hope in knowing that there is 
a scope, a story in which God is the one who sees who and what has true value. And it is up to God to protect and preserve uh, those people and those and those aspects of the history of creation. I mean, that's that's sort of, I think, what we lean into in this in this season and, and really throughout our our Christian life is that we believe in a God who sees what is true and sees what has value. And we believe in a God who claims that. Mm. One of the clearing of the threshing floor that I was thinking about is the racial justice audit that we completed recently in the church and it mm -hmm. sort of cleared and we could, it sort of made some more things come to light. We could see some different patterns that we see in our church, patterns of racism and what it might look like. And um, I think as our church and our congregations are beginning to realize and struggle with the knowledge, you know, at the end it kind of talks about the fruits um, and the axe is coming. Actually, it's not even at the end. I think it's the beginning. But the the you know the axe is coming, and the the trees that aren't bearing good fruit are going to get cut down. I'm wondering about the fruit of our church. Racism is definitely a part of our church, and is that fruit something that we think we can switch? Is it something that we just kind of? I've heard people say that too. We just need to cut down the whole system and start over again. Other people are like, no, we can transform the system if we believe in like a resurrection. But to have a resurrection, maybe you need to have a death. I don't know. Um, what, what, what are people's thoughts about that? John says he commands the crowd to bear fruits worthy of repentance. There's a part of me that, that believes and hopes that, that there is a way in which uh, authentic and deep repentance where it's needed uh, can lead to new fruits springing up in our midst uh, that, that we don't have to cut down the tree ourselves Again, I think I think God is the one who cuts down the trees in the same way that mm -hmm. God uh, separates the wheat from the chaff. I think that's God's work, and we can we can trust God in that. But but I do I do I think have a fundamental optimism about the capacity of the human spirit for redemption uh, and growth to to think that with true repentance, good fruits can can indeed be born. And I wonder if there is enough will in the church to make it. Mm. As Episcopalians, we so value our words, but we don't always value our action. I came to the Episcopal Church because I heard the words about social justice and love and equality and welcome. And then I entered the church and discovered so I like what John says. It's not enough to just repent. You got to do something with that. Hmm. And it yeah. has to cost you something. Yeah. Give one of yours away. Mm -hmm. If you have a method that makes you wealthy, at, but harms another person, then you have to stop doing it. And you have to learn to be satisfied with less. And I, I wonder if there's enough will in the church for us to be satisfied with less things and more love, more mm. generosity, that doesn't mean let's share coffee, but actually costs us something deeply personal. So I'm yeah. a priest because I still believe in the church. I believe in the work that God is doing, but I, I think it's time that we called people deeper 
into repentance and the works that are fruitful that show repentance actually happened. Absolutely. Amen. And I think part of that repentance, uh, from what I've heard and from what I've seen, is absolutely holding people accountable. And I think we see that in the gospel. You have one sentence that builds up, Abraham's our ancestor, and God's going to raise up stones or raise uh, stones to raise up the children. And yet right afterwards, we talk about an axe. And so for me, when I think of racism and the injustices that have happened in this country, I think of the axe wounds in the tree or the soil that has, or the field rather, that has been burned, right? And for me, the imagery around that is we made these indentations in the wood. We made these ruined fields. And yet, again, if we believe in a God of resurrection, then we believe that there is a possibility for new fields to grow and for new trees perhaps to be planted. But that still requires us as people of God to take accountability for the fact that we held the axe or we burned the fields to the ground. And what does it mean then to do the work of undoing that? And it's not its not easy uh, because to grow a new tree or to grow a new field takes a lot of work. I'm not a gardener, but I would assume it takes a lot of work. And after the fire is always when you have the most growth, right? If you ever see, like, if you ever see a field burn right after that is when you have all this growth that comes up as a result because the... the burning part fertilizes the new the new growth i was thinking about like what you were talking about andrea and like our churches aren't really good at sharing like if you look at like throughout the church like just i'm gonna pick on a couple but like if you look at trinity wall street for example they have tons and tons of money and there's some you know other plenty others you know the cathedral in cincinnati um and then we have like in our diocese, we have churches that don't even have running water. Like they have like an outhouse still and they, you know, can't even afford the insurance. And some of those people are like the most devout people who come to church every Sunday. Um, and it's just like so different. Like, I don't think we, if we can't even share among ourselves as a church, how can we be expected to share among the larger, wider creation, right? What do you think John would have to say to our church or our congregations if John were here now? I think, I think, this is somewhat to Andrea's point a minute ago. I think John would ask many of us and many people in, in the church to really be honest with themselves about who they are and what they actually stand for mm-hmm. and the ways in which they actually embody the things that they claim to stand for. Um, I think, you know, John calls out the people who come to him for baptism because he can see somehow into their hearts and know that they don't actually mean it they don't actually <laughs> they don't actually intend to repent of the things uh that he is calling them out on and i think in the same way we i think john would say to us you know it's all well and good to show up for a ritual week after week but if it's not transforming your life and your heart and your and the way in which your body shows up in the world get out of here you're mm-hmm. wasting my time and everyone else's time you know mm-hmm. it's strong words but 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 true. Uh, yeah, and, you know, I think just as it was relevant to the people in his time, I think probably a lot of us need to hear that in our own time. John loved Jesus the hardest. And because of that, I think he would hold people that much more accountable to the ways that he thinks Jesus would want to encounter people. 
if that makes mm. sense. And so to build on Phil's thing, I think he absolutely would be like, yeah, we're about love, we're about inclusion. And also, if you're not really about that life, reevaluate yourself so you can get in accordance and get right with that. Otherwise, like maybe reconsider where you're at, but then come talk to me when you're ready to love Jesus the right way or when you're ready to love Jesus, period, you know? To love Jesus for who he actually is, not just who, you know, maybe you want him to be. Mm. I was thinking about some of the things I hear our church say or other churches, like, you know, the young people aren't in the church anymore and blah, 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 blah. And I think they're kind of what you just talked about, Nelson. Like they are seeing the hypocrisy and they don't like that. And then that's that's usually when they pull out. Um, and they want to see that we're actually practicing what we're preaching. Let's shift over to Zephaniah. And um, I love Zephaniah. I think uh, we use it in our uh, Becoming Beloved Community Advent Guide and to talk about uh, practicing practicing the way of becoming beloved community. Where do you see those parallels or where does this Zephaniah passage sort of resonate with you? For me, it was like the, like sort of toward the end. It's like, I will deal with all your oppressors at that time, save the lame, gather the outcasts, now make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. For me, it actually comes up right after that line, uh, Shaniqua, where uh, it says, at that time, I will bring you home hmm. at that time when I gather you. And I think for me, that line stands out the most because despite having the vaccine, I think so many people are still very much feeling isolated despite even being able to go into active worship communities, right? Hmm. I think for some individuals, because they didn't take the pause that we talked about, uh, or maybe they didn't take the pause to uh, maybe the length that they might have needed to, they didn't really get to consider what it meant to be who they are in this new world. And so this idea of home, it's a striking image, but it's also a, a poignant question of what does it mean to be home, to find home in God, especially during this entire process of us feeling perhaps scattered, just uh, wanting to figure out how we can better help other people understand that, particularly as leaders in the church, as we define what we look like in the future, how do we also articulate or understand what a future and finding a home in God looks like? That's interesting to me, Nelson, uh, because, you know, the idea of home, probably when people hear that word, a lot of times you think of a place, whether it's, you know, your church home. Uh, or, you know, your your hometown or the home that you live in. And I and I obviously that the longing for the home that you can physically return to is is infused into Zephaniah's proclamation there. Um, but there's also that idea of what does it mean to come home to ourselves, to come home to a proper understanding of who we are in relationship to God and I think it's I think it's an interesting question of what what does it mean? How can we broaden the understanding of what it means to come home in this moment where our physical homes, especially our church homes, are something that we're not always able to to be in in the ways that we're used to. So how can we expand that definition of homecoming in this age of exile? Hmm. Verses uh, 15 and 17 from Zephaniah stood out to me probably the most. It proclaims that God is with us. It proclaims it twice. 
and hearing that um, God is with us in the midst of social injustice and our fight for a righteous way for all people to live and for our planet to flourish. It's not a work that we need to do alone. It's not a work that only takes that the only um, resources we have are what we have as humans, but there is divine presence in the work that's ahead of us. And it's not once, but it's twice in the passage that God is with us. And it can be a little hard sometimes um, when we have work to do, when we only see the resources that are in front of us. Um, but there's always this other resource uh, that's divine to get the work done that needs to happen. And that along with um, not to let your hands grow weak um, because the work is much. And for some people who are new to social justice work, their muscles aren't quite there yet. Uh-huh. And each time they step in, it feels overwhelming to them. Mm. And um, a, a gentleman shared with me that um, uh, he is a, a white gentleman and he was defending an injustice at work for a black gentleman. And he said to me, bless his heart, you know what's coming next. Um, (laughs) Andrea, when I did it, it just makes me so tired. And he's saying this to a black woman. And I'm thinking, dude, (laughs) no, no, no. You don't get to be tired yet until you wake up every single day as someone that society marginalizes. You don't get to be tired. And so I'm thankful that God is with us in Zephaniah. And um, it says, don't let your hands grow weak. God is in your midst. And so I think that's my message for people who have just kind of stepped into social justice to work with anti-racism or any of the isms that um, bring disease and death to people in our culture. It's you don't get to be tired yet, not until you wake up every day as someone who is misunderstood and at risk when they leave their house. At that point, you've done that a few years, then maybe you get to be tired. But until then, don't let your hands grow weak because there's work to do and God is with us. Let me shift to the Philippians passage. I noticed that because that's often how people do like the blessing at the end, you know, the surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds and knowledge and love of God. When was a time that you have felt that peace of God that passes all understanding? Has there been a time that you felt that? And what was it like? For me, I think it happens when I go to the Black Hills. There's like a lot of sacred spaces in the Black Hills and I go there and I'm like, I can, like you're just kind of present and I can smell the like the sap from the pine trees, this like piney smell. It's very relaxing and you feel the breeze and you can just kind of sense the holiness that's there. And then it kind of takes everything away. Like many individuals who went to seminary had to go through a clinical pastoral education. uh, And mine was in a hospital. My units that I covered, uh, one was the emergency department, one was cardio and one was neuro. And my particular departments with the exception of the emergency department tended to have individuals that were in often and were usually in for long stays. And what I found through a lot of those uh, encounters, particularly for my encounters where the individuals 
were also on hospice is that it was actually through those encounters that I felt closest to God in their suffering. I actually felt God's presence in that I could see the relation of Jesus's proximity to them. I feel that when you are close to suffering, you are close to Jesus. That has always kind of stood out with me in, in particularly encounters that kind of mirrored or had the same vibe of, you know, just a deep heaviness or sorrow. I could still feel the presence of God within all of that suffering. I think it was really an eye-opening experience for me because for those who know me and those that ascribe to the Enneagram, I'm a total seven. Hey, Episcopals, producer Polly here. Nelson talks about the Enneagram, which is a tool that divides personalities into nine types, Nelson's type being number seven. According to their website, number seven is called the enthusiast, which means extroverted, optimistic, versatile, and spontaneous. Now back to Nelson. And so I tend to align more with the joyful things and the happy things in life. And so for me to connect in my ministry with the suffering part has been so eye-opening and again just um it brings a different meaning to how i connect and how i kind of uh live out my ministry uh with people it's funny you say that nelson because i was thinking about the enneagram as well <laughs> uh, <laughs> in in this uh, i am i am a hardcore enneagram four uh and i have a very we'll say rich and layered interior reality that is both a blessing and a burden uh, in my life. So in other words, like I'm in my head and in my feelings a lot. And I think for me, those moments when I have experienced uh, a sense of true peace, uh, just that gracious sort of peace, were the moments where I was able to, to get out of myself a little bit, um, get out of the intensity of my interiority and experience a true sense of connection with the present moment, whether that was with another person or in prayer, um, it, you know, and, but just a, a moment of almost becoming myself by losing myself. I, I, th there's a way in which I think that if we, God can enter into uh, a spaciousness that we can cultivate um, that where we no longer rely necessarily fully on just our typical patterns of being, but experience the other possibilities of what it means to be in relationship um, and to be able to rest in that uh, can be a really powerful and peaceful, peaceful thing for me. It makes me think of in seminary or in theology of uh, the emptying out of Jesus, this kenosis of ourselves and our identities where my baseline is joy and happiness, but in order for me to truly connect and to feel the peace of God, which passes all understanding, it's almost I have to empty that joy and to really let myself connect with the suffering, the true suffering that all humanity kind of experiences at various points in their life. And that's actually what brings me closer to God. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating thing that I haven't considered before. Yeah, that's, yes. You, you need some... Uh some suffering to balance the joy. I need a little levity to balance the uh, moody intensity, I guess. <laughs> God, God finds us where in our, in our space of need. Shortly after uh, George Floyd hmm. and 
I was leaving the church and I saw a police officer in his car and I was hurrying to my car, hoping not to be seen. And you could feel that prick of the Holy Spirit, that little nudge that says you're going the wrong direction. And inside I went, oh, please, Jesus, I cannot speak to him today. Um, and I put, so I put my stuff in my car and as I was pulling away, the Holy Spirit would not leave me alone, which I found somewhat irritating. Um, and so I left my things in my car and I locked it. And with my hands up, I walked over to the policeman and I said, um, my name is Andrea and I wasn't wearing a collar. So I had, I didn't have that. And I said, my name is Andrea. How can I pray for you? And I thought, God, I don't want to pray for him. I want him to behave better. Mm. And um, he got out of the car and he talked with me and he shared um, how he wanted to do good. And that's why he became a cop. And now people want him dead. He's afraid of me because of the community I represent. I'm afraid of him because of the community he represents. But the Holy Spirit loves us both. And when I could hear him, he has now become my friend. And he can hear me and he can see that maybe we're not all so dangerous. And so I go back to that. It passed my understanding because I had no idea what the Holy Spirit had in store. Um, but the presence of the Holy Spirit guarded not, by, not only our hearts, but our lives as, as we spent time together. Beautiful. Sometimes she nudges and sometimes she pushes and sometimes she drags you <laughs> kicking and screaming. Right? <laughs> <Quite> often. Yep. <laughs> what strikes me about sort of what we've been sharing here, uh, including that amazing story, Andrea, is that that a sense of peace, the peace of God, is not. It's not actually like the absence of conflict or tension, but it's, hmm. it's like it's an experience of wholeness in the midst of the tension mm. and complexity of life, uh, which is, I think, does go against a, a common understanding of peace, uh, the kind of easy peace that people tend to want or talk about. The peace, deep peace, is costly. Yeah. It's risky. Yeah. It's not that fluffy stuff uh, where we have this smooth looking water and we can all party together but it's a, a peace real peace does come through suffering and pain and risk and fear yeah Phil, and vulnerability yes mm. yes and to bring up what i mentioned earlier i know a lot of you know when people consider their christian practice or their discipleship they think that it's just going to be sunshine and rainbows and good times. Right. But, you know, for us to truly follow our baptismal covenant and to live into that, like, it's a lift. It, it's a lot of work. <laughs> and it's not always going to be smiles and rejoicing, right? It's it's going to be tears and there's going to be hard conversations. And, you know, a lot of maybe we, need, we can't talk about this right now, but we're going to talk about it eventually because that's what God calls us to do is to eventually – 
when everyone is ready, hopefully, is to have those types of conversations that Andrea had with with, uh, the law enforcement officer. As we were talking about this particular Sunday, one, I'm very curious, like, what kind of liturgical things are you thinking of possibly doing? I was thinking about, like, this really calls for, like, Aspergis and maybe switching out the the creed for um, the baptismal covenant. One thing I think about as you ask that, Shaniqua, is that, so this is the third Sunday of Advent that we're talking about, and in um, liturgically traditional high church uh, spaces, uh, we refer to this as Gaudete Sunday. Uh, so if if you were a parish that, that were, were so disposed, this is the Sunday, one of two Sundays of the year, you would wear rose-colored vestments. Um, mm. And in fact, I serve at a parish that will have rose-colored vestments for for this Sunday. Um, and I'm inspired through our conversations to take seriously the idea of Gaudete is, is intended to be sort of a joyful uh, sort of outburst uh, in the midst of the sort of thoughtfulness of Advent. Um, and so I'm inspired by this conversation to think about what does it mean to be authentically, deeply, truly joyful, not in a sort of sentimental way, not in a cheap way, but what what is what is what is true joy? What's the what's the depth of of joy that we can lean into in this in this moment in the liturgical calendar? Um, so that when we light a candle, when we wear a certain colored vestment, it's not just sort of a, a pretty thing to do, but that it's it's sort of undergirded by by a deep sense of spirit and a deep sense of of honesty and and repentance. How does repentance lead to joy? Like there's a lot of hmm. interesting themes I think mm. we could meditate on uh, for this particular Sunday. If you're somewhere warm, I could see you doing this outside by like a lake or a river or something. I'm kind of leaning on you or looking at you, Nelson, because you're the only one that's like low enough on the, <laughs> the yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting you mentioned that because so last year in Arizona, we were only um, at that point we were still only doing outdoor services, um, and we I want to say a few months ago we re- recently shifted to going inside. Uh, because in Arizona it gets, you know, 120 plus in the summer in some parts. And so, but being outside for us brought so many different experiences and different encounters with, I think, God's creation that a lot of folks weren't necessarily expecting. I mean, you know, whether it's, you know, having the birds fly around or different bugs. Um, In Arizona, we have these um, things called javelinas. They look like pigs, but they're not. They're like small rhinoceri and they're very mean. Again, I mentioned that my church is St. Francis. And so oddly enough, I think for our people, being outside and being in the midst of God's creation and hearing the birds and seeing the other different Mm. types of creatures that might be around brings a different element to our worship. And so I think that element of connecting with the joy of that particular day is interesting. And it's very different. I mean, a lot of our folks, again, love being able to worship in the church, but there are many days, particularly when it's a beautiful morning, when I'm like, it would be great to be able to just do this in the courtyard again. I think of times when we would finish a reading and there was, quote, liturgical silence, but then it was broken by, you know, birds or the buzz of, you know, bees. And for me, that was a love letter from God in the midst of the service. And and now inside, you know, we have all these wonderful and amazing things and we have the organ, uh, but I, I, I miss those little love letters from God. Hmm. I have a 
kind of a love-hate relationship. I see people leaning into the joy of Christmas before we're finished, before we're ready. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'd almost prefer the Easter Lent. Mm-hmm. I feel more Lenten, and I'm not quite ready to rejoice um, for the third Sunday. So when I got, when you gave me the opportunity to do this, I'm like, that's my difficult Sunday. Um, <laughs> but in, in having the conversation together, it, it really has helped me move along a bit. And I, I think I'm going back to Zephaniah for this, for me. And it is, there's a lot of work to be done. Let's take a break and rejoice in the work we've already done. Let's use it as energy for the work that is before us as we still await the coming of Christ in our midst in new ways. Nice. What other suggestions do you have for preaching this text or preaching this Sunday? I think we've kind of alluded to it throughout this conversation, but I, you know, if, if one is preaching on this Sunday and wants to lean into the sort of joy and hope uh, emphases of, of the third Sunday of Advent, I think it's really important to not do so in a sentimental or cheap way. I think to, to go deeper, to, you know, sort of name that as in Zephaniah, there's a promise of redemption and return, but that was preceded by hardship and humbling and humility and honesty about the, the failures that Israel experienced. And so what does it mean for us in this moment to prepare the way towards hope, towards redemption, but in a way that is honest about our own challenges, the ones we've come through and the ones that we still have yet to face? I think because only if we do that can we experience an authentic joy, an authentic Mm. sense of hope and promise. I immediately think of our initial conversation around the wheat and the chaff and kind of if you are planning to preach this, consider if you are making it a binary or if you're making it more of an expansive understanding of what or who the wheat or chaff might be. Hmm. And then if you are doing that, you know, and we're rooting it back into God and joy, whose joy then are we talking about, right? Is it the joy that we consider of all God's people or is it the joy of a particular group or individual or, or a particular lens that we are filtering this passage through. And I think for a preacher to do this intentionally and mindfully is to consider their narrative, uh, and that includes privileges and other things, right? Um, and how that might be filtered through this process of doing their exegesis and whatnot. And then making sure that, you know, the joy actually is everyone's joy if that's what they go back to. Um, so that it is, again, as Phil mentioned, an authentic joy. When John gave us his message about repentance and what that looks like. The people thought that he might be the Messiah, but John knew who he really was. He was Mm -hmm. truly authentic in his message. And I think people may call us out of our names. They may expect things from us that we are not. But I would say, especially for um, those who are clergy, to recognize that we are who God has called us to be and not being everything that everyone asks of us to be during Mm. this season. Mm -hmm. And that for those who haven't done their work, this is their time to get to do their work before the year runs out and Jesus gets here and we start over again. Awesome. 
Thank you everyone so much for being a part of this conversation and sharing your wisdom with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have today. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Andrea, Phil, and Nelson. Thanks to our production team, especially Chris, Phoebe, Nick, and Polly. If you heard something meaningful today, I love it if you would rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine.